I feel bad for Frank Tamari, our organist, because nobody seems to want to sit anywhere near him. It's like you have the plague, Frank. Thank you for playing for us. Last week we looked at Jonah 1, and we're going to look at Jonah 1 again. Uh, Last week we looked at what does Jonah 1 tell us about God? And, and obviously the scriptures, that's the, one of the main things the scriptures do for us is to inform us about who God is. And last week we looked at the fact that God is good and his commands are good even when we, they don't make sense to us. We learned that God is sovereign. He sends storms into our life to bring us back to him. He personally pursues us in his sovereignty. We also learned that God substitutes himself uh, because Jesus said he was the greater Jonah and that Jonah going over the side of the ship was a miniature picture of what Jesus would do for us in taking our sin upon himself. This morning I want to look at the the very same chapter but I, I want us to see how the scripture sometimes teaches us about God which is crucial but the scripture also exposes our hearts. It teaches us about ourselves. It teaches us about human beings. And in Jonah 1 I think we have through the narrative we have a very clear picture of, 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 of Jonah's heart which I think too often is similar to our hearts. And I want us to see that this morning. I think that will be very, very important. So this morning what I want us to do is I want us, I want us to, to allow God's word to expose our self-righteousness and our tendency to self-righteousness and how that is destructive. And then I want to see from the narrative the two steps that must be taken by us with God's help to undermine and, 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 and help us move out of our self-righteousness into a deeper understanding of God's grace and then to live out that grace with other people. So our self-righteousness, God's grace, and how God's grace should motivate us to demonstrate that grace to other people. Let's dive in here. First of all, we want to look at the fact that all of us are prone to self-righteousness and it's very destructive. Let's take a look at Jonah again. We go back to verse one, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. Call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah rose, he flees to Tarshish. He was supposed to go just about straight east to Nineveh and preach against that city. The capital of the Assyrian Empire, which is the emerging world empire. A very violent group of people, but also a people that were threatening God's people, particularly the northern kingdom of Israel at this time. Eventually, they would take over the northern kingdom of Israel. This is where Jonah was was working at the time. And Jonah goes straight west to Tarshish, which was probably on the coast of Spain. Now, I mentioned that last week, but I want you to see this again. In the book of Jonah, we get the main reason why Jonah didn't want to do this. Go to chapter 4. Jonah speaking to God. This is at the end of the book. He prayed to the Lord and said, verse 2, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God a merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah is praying this prayer because when he, uh, when he preached to Nineveh and said, you know, you're going to be destroyed in, 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 in just a few weeks, 
the Ninevites repent and God relents from, from pouring out his wrath and anger and punishment upon Nineveh. And Jonah is ticked off. Because he doesn't believe these Ninevites who are enemies of God and enemies of God's people deserve God's mercy. They don't deserve God's grace. And this is the beginning of self-righteousness. When we begin to turn the grace of God into believing somehow that it is through our performance that we're right with God, that we did something to get us right with God, we fall out of understanding the God of grace and mercy and we begin to become self-righteous. We begin to believe that we are right with God through our performance, through what we do. And once we do that, once we make that move, then we become very judgmental of anyone around us who doesn't measure up to the standards that we have earned. When we lose sight of the God of grace and mercy, we fall into self-righteousness, the very first thing that happens is we start to think that I deserve God's mercy, even though God's mercy is only for the undeserving. I deserve God's grace, even though God's grace is for the undeserving. And we begin to look at people and judge them and distance ourselves from them and begin to think somehow I have earned my place with God you have failed to live up to the standards you should and we begin to judge people and begin to treat people in all kinds of inappropriate ways from benign neglect to judgment in Jonah's case he refuses to go tell these people who desperately needs God's grace, he refuses to even go tell them about God's grace because he has fallen into this self-righteousness. Now this is pretty common. It's pretty common among all people really. I mean if you think about our country the way it is now, we are probably in the most self-righteous culture that I have ever seen. If you don't believe that, I mean I don't know, you know, if you look at the stories on the news, you have people who make one mistake or one, almost a mistake on social media and those people lose their jobs, they're out, they're done, they're fired, it's over for them. Reminds me of one of my favorite movies. I used to watch this every Thanksgiving when I was growing up. It came on after all the football on Thanksgiving. It's The Sound of Music. I would like to sing the second act for you. Mom, I sing the part where Julie Andrews, who's uh, the nun, the wayward nun, so to speak, who's now become the nanny to the Von Trapp children, and she and Captain Von Trapp are falling in love, and Julie Andrews sings this wonderful song. You know, nothing comes from nothing, never, nothing ever could. And so here's what she says. This is why you got to be careful with musicals, bad theology. So somewhere in my child, youth or childhood, I must have done something good. She starts off the same by saying, perhaps I had a wicked childhood. Well, you did, Julie. Perhaps I had a miserable youth. Well, probably too. But somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth. For here you are singing to Captain Von Trapp. Here you are, standing there loving me, whether or not you should. Somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. This is the essence of self-righteousness. That if I'm being blessed by God, I must have done something good. 
If my life is going pretty well, I must have done something right. And conversely, if things are not going well for me, I must have done something wrong. If life isn't treating me too well, it must be because I sinned and I didn't measure up. I didn't perform well. But the reality is, what, what, what God is all about is he's a God of mercy and grace. He's told Jonah, the prophet of God, go to the Ninevites and preach to them and offer them the same grace and mercy I offered you, Jonah. And Jonah doesn't want any part of it. These people don't deserve God's mercy. I do, they don't. And this is a trap. This is a trap I think we fall into more than we think. Now, if you look at Jonah, his self-righteousness that sort of propels him to disobey God begins to manifest itself in other ways where he fails to love those around him very well. Verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. The ship threatened to break up. The mariners were afraid. Each cried out to his God. So here, it's interesting, what begins to happen here happens in a lot of other places in Scripture where the people that you would expect to be not the good people, the mariners who were pagans, who didn't follow God, they actually begin to operate in pretty decent ways. And the prophet of God, who has been given God's grace and mercy both individually and corporately as as a a member of the chosen uh, nation of God, Israel, begins to act very badly. So the mariners were afraid. They each cried out to his God. Well, they're praying. Now, they're not praying to the true God, but at least they're praying. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So they're trying to save the lives of all the passengers, including themselves. But where's the prophet of God? Well, Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship, had lain down and was fast asleep. Now, this was a physical thing. He truly was asleep. But oftentimes, the word sleep is used as a metaphor in the Scripture for somebody who is spiritually off track, someone who is spiritually not connecting with the God of grace and mercy. So there, Jonah is fast asleep. In verse 6, one of the most ironic verses in all of Scripture, so the captain of the ship came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now think about this. Jonah is a prophet of God. Jonah is supposed to be the one who tells people about God, to tell the pagans about God. But here the pagan ship captain has to come down to the prophet of God, say, wake up, we're in a bad situation, please come and pray for us. It's outrageous. Jonah in his self-righteousness believing that he has earned his way with God and the Ninevites clearly have not earned their way with God, forgetting the God of grace and mercy that came to him and came to his people Israel, has now begun to sort of in benign neglect, neglect everyone around him and not be very loving to everyone around him. They're praying. The captain's trying to say, prophet of God, come, bring your faith to the table. We're in desperate to help. And the prophet of God's asleep. Not praying, not caring. Well, it gets worse. Verse 7. They said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. We're told in Proverbs that God sometimes controls that. I don't think this is a good way to determine your life goals, okay, through casting lots, okay. But God uses that sometimes. So they cast lots, the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. 
What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Now, it's very interesting. Several questions here. Jonah answers the last question first. And notice what Jonah says first to the sailors. He says to them, I'm a Hebrew. Then he goes on to say, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I think this is very significant. Jonah's initial way to identify himself is not identify himself first and foremost with the God who made the land and the sea. He identifies himself with his ethnicity. I'm a Hebrew. I'm part of the chosen people of God. I'm one of the the chosen nation. I'm the favored nation among all nations. That's how he starts to, to talk about his identity. His identity is first in that and then secondarily is in this God. And I think what you have here is a clue that what Jonah is doing in his self-righteousness is, is he's, he's moved away from the God of mercy and grace. He somehow believes that other people don't measure up and they shouldn't get God's grace and mercy. He forgets that he needs grace and mercy and he forgets that his country, even though it was chosen by God, it wasn't chosen by God because Israel was great. We're told in Deuteronomy 7, I chose you, Israel, not because you were more numerous, not because you were more powerful, not because you were better than anyone else. I chose you out of sheer grace. And Jonah has completely lost sight of this in his self-righteousness, not only individually, but corporately. One verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And Jonah said to them, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. Finally, Jonah is actually coming up with something that shows he cares a little bit for these men. But notice what the sailors do in verse 13. They don't immediately throw him out. I would have been tempted as a sailor if a prophet of God said, hey, I'm running from the Lord, throw me over. I'd say, yeah, that's a great idea. Better you than me. But what do they do? Verse 13, these pagan sailors who don't know the true God, who Jonah has showed a benign neglect of, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. They're doing everything in their power to save the prophet of God, and the prophet of God has done absolutely nothing to care for them. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. <laughs> then, the, then the sailors, these pagan sailors, they called out to the Lord, Lord, don't let us perish for this man's life. They still don't want to throw him overboard, even though Jonah is the cause of the whole problem. Lay not on us the, the innocent blood for you. O Lord, for you have done as it pleased. And then finally they throw him over. I submit to you, That what you see here, which the Bible often does, is the bad people, so to speak, the pagans, are showing more care and love for Jonah than the prophet of God is showing love to him, to them. And the reason is, is because he's lost touch with the God of grace and mercy. In his own self-righteousness, he believes he deserves God's grace and God's mercy. The Ninevites don't deserve it. The sailors don't deserve it. And it keeps him from caring for people because he believes he's okay because of his performance and their performance that puts them outside of God's love, outside of God's grace, It's their own fault that they lie outside of that, and I have no responsibility to help them. This is huge. 
And if you think we don't do this, and if you think you don't do it, I, th- I would think you think again. Just thinking about reflecting on this text, it's been very convicting for me this last week, is how many times, and, and when I grew up, I mean, this is my view of America. Everybody's got a fair shot, work hard, do the right thing, and, and, and God will bless you. Sort of almost bought into the fact that you could do anything you wanted to do. But the reality is, while it is true, the Bible says it's, it's, it's good to obey God and it's good to work hard. And, and there is a sense in which if you work hard, you usually reap the results of that. And if you're lazy, you reap the results of that. It is not true that everything in your life is about performance. It's about grace. What does James 1.17 say? Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. And while you may have worked hard and that may have been a good thing for you to do, the reality is that every single thing you have, everything you have ever accomplished, everything that you think you own is a gift from God by grace. Do you believe that? I think for a lot of us, we think, well, hey, I worked hard. I, I earned, this is mine. I earned this. No. In terms of the macro, nothing that you have ever accomplished, nothing that you have ever earned, nothing that you've, has ever come to you, your job, your money, your resources, your education, the opportunities you've had, all of that was a gift from God by grace. You didn't deserve for it. You deserve it. You didn't work for it. And when we lose sight of a God of grace and mercy, and we somehow feel like we deserve God's grace and mercy, we look down on anyone who doesn't seem to be having the same good life that we do because we think we actually earned it. And that we deserve it. And if they're not experiencing the good life, so to speak, something must be wrong with them. It's easy for us to make snap judgments of people. One of my favorite stories, um, story of a, 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 a New York City person who's reading his New York Times on the subway back before COVID-19. He's reading the New York Times in the quietness. It's typical New York. Nobody's talking to each other. There's no community on a subway. Have you ever been on one? Don't look at people. Don't talk to people. He's reading his New York Times and in comes a family at the next stop. Four or five kids, and it looks like the father. The family comes into the subway car, and immediately the kids are completely out of control. The people are completely, the kids are yelling and screaming and running around and changing seats. They start to bother the, the, the other riders of the subway, and the guy reading the New York Times is getting ticked off. He said, these kids are out of control. What kind of a father would let his kids just run amok like this? And it just goes on and on, stop after stop after stop. And the kids continue to get worse and worse. The father makes no effort to to deal with his children. And finally, the guy reading the New York Times came up to the father and said, can you get a handle on your children? The father looked at him and said, I'm so sorry. We're on our way from the hospital. My wife has just died. My kids have just lost their mother. And I don't think we're doing too well. See the self-righteous judgment? You're not living up to the standard I think you should live on and it must be because you're a bad person and you... Well, there's there's a backstory. I think about the Koinonia team doing the color of compromise. 
When I think, when I, I read the book, I encourage some of you to read that book. Get it on Amazon this afternoon. The Color of Compromise is a story of history of the, the church in North America and how it responded to African Americans who were, were struggling with slavery and the aftermath of slavery and all the way up to the present. And the reality is, it's not a great look for the church of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying every church was like this. I'm not saying every believer was asleep at the switch. But a lot of the church was like Jonah. Smug in their self-righteousness. Smug in the sense that, well, their problem is simply because they haven't worked hard enough. In spite of the fact that they've been in slavery for a couple hundred years. Their problem is they need to work harder. They need to earn their way. They need to do this or that. It's not my problem. And the church was asleep while African American uh, brothers and sisters, our neighbors, were struggling. And the church in many cases was silent, provided no help, provided no care. Why? Because we lost touch with the God of grace and mercy. And failed to be merciful and gracious to people who are suffering in all kinds of ways. I submit to you, when the scripture says in the Old Testament in Leviticus 19, love your neighbor... When the scripture says to love the widow and care for the widow and care for uh, the, the, the orphan and care for the alien and care for the poor. He's saying in all these situations as believers and people of God, we've got to be people who care and love and care for our neighbor. And Jonah is a story of the prophet of God losing touch with God's grace, acting indifferent to the sailors on the the ship that he's on and acting indifferent really to the Ninevites who desperately need to hear God's grace. And in his self-righteousness, believing that he has earned his way and others have not earned their way, He's acted as if the people who aren't earning the way, it's all their fault. They don't deserve God's grace and I will make no effort to demonstrate God's grace or mercy to them because it's really their fault because how we get right with God is really by performance and they're not performing too well. That's the destructiveness of self-righteousness. Now two steps to get us back on track. You hear this probably every week. (laughs) Last week we talked about how God substituted himself. This is sort of step one. This is the macro step. This is the big step. Verse 15, they picked up Jonah. They hurled him into the sea. The sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. When Jesus talks about Jonah, he says, I am the greater Jonah. What Jonah pictures when he goes off the side of the ship is that Jonah sacrificed his life in some sense for the life of the sailors, but it was a picture of the greater sacrifice where God himself goes over the side of the boat, so to speak, to save us. When Jesus Christ in his mercy and grace takes the wrath of God on him instead of us. He becomes our substitute so that we might have forgiveness. He becomes our substitute so that we could receive his grace and mercy. And his justice could be satisfied because it was satisfied on the head of Jesus Christ. I would say to all of us, 
what are you going to do to keep that vision of who God is and what he's done for you front and center in your life? I know we believe that. Most of us who come to church here or are sitting online, we believe this. But the the issue is, tomorrow afternoon at 3, are you going to believe this? Is that going to be your identity? Is that going to be your focus? Is that going to be your your actual functional hope? Because when you get your eyes off the God of grace and mercy and you begin to think like Jonah, and we all do it, that somehow God blessed me because I must have done something right, as Julie Andrews sang to us, We start to move away from the God of grace, but then it begins to infect the way we treat other people. If you read the Bible carefully, you will see that how we love or not love our neighbor reflects what we do and how we love God himself. That's the way it works. If you don't love your neighbor, there's something fundamentally wrong in your understanding of who God is and what he's done. I think for some of us, we need to wake up in the morning and realize that waking up was a gift of God's grace. We need to realize that Jesus dying in our place was a gift of God's grace. We need to realize that every aspect of our life is a gift of grace. We didn't earn it. It was given to us. And we need to praise that God, but acknowledge it. That's the first macro step. The second step is to see what Jonah did here. If you go back to verse 11, then they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us that the sea grew more and more tempestuous? He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. In other words, Jonah realizes that the only way for him to save and love his neighbors, his fellow sailors, so to speak, on that boat, is that he is going to have to sacrifice himself and they will be saved. He will have to pay, sort of be thrown overboard himself so that the, the sailors will be saved. Now what this reminds us, and many commentators have, have, have demonstrated this, is what this reminds us of when we look at a story like this, the story of the Good Samaritan. I don't know if you all remember that, but there was a lawyer. A lawyer came to Jesus with a question, of course. He was worried about the fine print of the law. And what do I need to do, Jesus. And Jesus says, well, how does it read to you? And, and the guy says, well, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but you also need to love your neighbor as yourself. He's a lawyer. He's looking for a loophole. Who's my neighbor? What does that mean? Let's define that. And then Jesus tells his story. There's a guy going, from Jer- Jer- going down uh, uh, to Jerusalem, from Jer- going to Jericho from Jerusalem. I'm, actually, I forgot what it is. Jerusalem and Jericho are the two cities. I don't know if he's going or coming. But he's going down, and there's a guy who was on a trip going down, and he's set upon by bandits, by robbers. They beat him up, leave him for dead, and they rob him. He's on the side of the road. What happens next is, someone comes along, a priest, oh, a religious person, a pastor type, like me. And he comes on, sees the man in trouble, and just keeps right on going. Mm-hmm, self-righteousness. I'm busy, I got things to do. If I help him, that might endanger me. I don't really want to stop. That could be dangerous. I, well, you know, I, I'm not sure what I should do here. And then, and, and then a Levite comes by. 
someone who works in the temple, and he passes the person by. And then Jesus says, a Samaritan came by. Now, this was shocking because the Samaritans were not loved by the Jews at this time. They were racially other, having interbred in part because of the Assyrian capture of of the northern kingdom and other, uh, uh, you know, intermarriage that took place. So they weren't fully Jewish. They also were religiously different than Jewish people because they had set up a worship center in the northern part of the kingdom when the kingdom split from uh, Judah, because Judah had Jerusalem and the temple, they set up their own worship center. So religiously and, and ethnically, the Good Samaritan has to cross these lines. And what does the Good Samaritan do? At great cost to himself, he cares for the man. He endangers himself by stopping because it was a dangerous road. He puts the man on, 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 on his animal. He, he takes him to an inn. He pays for his help. He pays for his, his, um, his medical help and offers to pay more to get this man nursed back to health. The Good Samaritan crosses racial and ethnic lines in order to pour his life out sacrificially to love the neighbor. And that's the rub here. Jesus says, love your neighbor. He also says, love your enemy. Why? Because they're usually the same person. He also says, love one another. Then Jesus says, greater love hath no man than this, and a man lay down his life for, for, for others. I mean, in other words, sacrificial love is the essence of love. All love is about substituting yourself in place of the other person. All love is saying, your interests are more important than my interests. I set aside my interests to help you. It's all about substituting yourself. It's all about making sacrifices, and that's what God has called us to do. And if we are not loving our neighbor, then we're really not loving God. If we're not showing grace and mercy to those around us, we're not doing what the God of grace and mercy wants us to do in the first place. We're not fulfilling the mission he has for the world. I've had more time to think about this. It's been very convicting. Well, let me ask you some questions that God's been asking me. I thought about having the elders go into my neighborhood and interview all of my neighbors. This would make me a very transitional pastor. <laughs> and just ask my neighbors, hey, did you know, you know, you know Tracy, he's, he's kind of like a priest Levite, that Good Samaritan story. Do, do, does he know you? Is he involved in your life? Does he care for you? Does he pray for you? I'm, I, you know, I, I do have some relationships with some of my neighbors, but some of my neighbors, I've just waved at them. I've waved at them 37 times in the last eight years when we happen to go into the driveway together or we happen to be at the mailboxes. Are you loving your neighbor? Do you pray for your neighbor? you care for them, get to know them, find out what their needs are? How about your co-workers? If I went to some of your co-workers and interviewed them and says, hey, uh, you know, this is a person who goes to, to Stonehill Church. He's one of our, he's one of our, you know, he's a member, member in good standing. How does he treat you? He claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ who follows the God of grace and mercy. Is he pretty gracious and merciful around here? What would they say? I hope they wouldn't say, 
they're Christians? <laughs> wow. And of course, you know, it, it, your classmates, you know, do, do, you, do you care for your classmates? Again, again, we see from Jonah, he doesn't pray for the sailors, he's, not, he's nowhere. He's not involved with the sailors. He's, the, the, the whole ship is about to break up and, and, the, and the believers are sleeping the ship with no prayer. What are we doing? And of course, this doesn't mean just caring for the needs of our neighbors. That's certainly true. But what's one of the greatest ways you can care for your neighbor? And that's to share your faith. Some of you know the... Um, uh, it was kind of a magic act. They were, they were in Las Vegas. I never went to any of their shows, but Penn and Teller in Las Vegas. I think uh, Teller has passed away, but Penn Gillette is one of the magicians. got a show on Las Vegas, and um, he tells a story. It's on YouTube if you want to look it up, but he tells a story about after the show, a, a businessman came up to him and told him, said, man, I really loved your show, really appreciate your honesty, your show was great, and then the, the businessman handed... Uh, Pin Gillette a Bible. And so I just want to give this to you. It has something nice written in it. Now, Pin Gillette is an avowed atheist. And here's what he says about this encounter. He says, it was very interesting. This man came up. He was so nice. He was so gentle. He was very complimentary of me. And I think it was genuine. He handed me a Bible. Now I'm an atheist. I think everything in the Bible is bunk. But he gave me a Bible. And I happen to respect that man. Because that man actually believes the Bible. That man actually believes that my eternal destiny as an atheist might be in some jeopardy. That man believes he's found the answer to eternal life. And he's actually giving me a Bible. Now, I don't believe it. and I, I, I politely disagreed with him. But I respect a man like that because that's a man who actually loves me and cares for me. And then, and then Pinjolette, this is the atheist talking, says... How much do you have to hate somebody if you really thought you had the gift of eternal life, that you had it, and the answer to it was in a Bible uh, about Jesus? How much do you have to hate somebody not to tell people about that? I had to turn the YouTube clip off. It's too convicting. Pendulette went on to say, if... We were together and there was a truck about to hit you. It would be my moral obligation to, to push you out of the way or to warn you. And he said, if you actually are a Christian, don't you have a moral obligation to try to warn us of what you honestly believe is going to happen if we don't turn to Christ? And again, I think one of the reasons we don't share our faith and one of the reasons we don't know our neighbors and one of the reasons we don't connect with our neighbors and pray for our neighbors and our co-workers and our friends is because we have become self-righteous. It's their fault that they don't know Christ. They, they, they're they living badly. It's, it's their fault. We've forgotten that we are in the same boat. We don't deserve mercy and grace. In order for God to rescue us, he had to send somebody to tell us about this message because by ourselves, we would never come to faith in Christ. We had someone to come into our lives who loved us and cared for us and, and, and loved us enough tangibly with material and time and energy and emotional support who then also opened up for us the gospel of Christ. I think if we were more honest, the reason 
that we're not as involved with our neighbors is because deep down we're really self-righteous and we think it's their fault rather than seeing them as potential objects of God's mercy that need to be told about this God of grace and mercy that we claim to follow. My encouragement to all of us as you contemplate Jonah 1 is to remember you're never going to love a neighbor. You're never going to love somebody else. You're never going to love someone who's different from you religiously or ethnicity-wise. You're never going to love somebody who's in a difficult situation unless your eyes are fully enthralled with the God of mercy and grace. And when you put your eyes on Jesus, that will be the motivation to pour out your life for someone else in all kinds of tangible ways. And as God gives opportunities, you will open up your mouth and tell that person who you're helping and caring for about this God of grace and mercy. Let's pray for us that we would do that. In Jesus. Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you for Jesus Christ who threw himself into the storm so that we might live. I pray that we would be enthralled with him and be enthralled with what he has done for us. I pray that in looking at Jesus and gazing upon the incredible mercy and grace he's given to us, that that would fill us up and motivate us to love our neighbors in all kinds of ways, praying for them, connecting with them, meeting their needs. And, and yes, telling them as we get opportunities of the mercy and grace of God that can be theirs in Christ. Lord, forgive us for our lack of concern for our fellow neighbors. Forgive us for our lack of prayer, our lack of connection, our lack of meeting needs, our lack of having a passion to share with our neighbors, friends, co-workers, classmates. Deliver us from our self-righteousness, Lord. Help us to see that we desperately need God's grace and therefore we can't look down on anyone no matter what they're struggling with which frees us up to help people rather than judge people. To move towards people rather than distance ourselves through judgment or casual indifference. Lord, I pray that we would be known as people who have been so transformed by the mercy and grace of God that we turn around and live out that grace and mercy to everyone we meet. May we be known as the neighbor, the co-worker, the classmate, the one who cares, the one who meets needs, the one who serves. Not the ones who walk by hurting people day after day. And may we be bold enough as we love our neighbors, fellow co-workers and friends, as God gives us opportunities, may we speak the words of God's grace and mercy. Mercy and grace that we have received, may we offer that to others as good neighbors, as those who love God, but we also love others because of God's great love for us. Help us, Lord, to that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.